Hi, this is Petra, Emilia, Rafael, Sophie, and Patricia. And we are an international group of MA students on the Photography and Society course at the Royal Academy of Arts in The Hague. And this is Photography and Society, the podcast, created in response to the Undisciplining Photography Symposium. Welcome along and thanks for listening. Hello there. My name is Rafael, and I will be your host for today's episode dedicated to photography and imperialism. For this episode, I invite you to think and discuss the consequences of imperialism and how this issue is artistically explored, reproduced, and counterpracticed from the former colonies' perspective through the works of two Brazilian artists, Barbara Wagner and Jonatas de Andrade. Both Barbara and Jonatas represent distinct artistic perspectives that are not obvious or dominant. Much interested in listening, dialoguing, and collaborating with the society of which they are part of. Let's meet them and have a closer look at the global south, specifically Brazil, where there is a country of continental proportions reflecting its history, identity, and colonial past every single day. But before that, let's listen to photography on the run. In photography on the run, we ask people to describe one photograph, but in this case, it will be a video and will be related to the topic of this episode. Later on, I will tell you more about it, or you can check it on our Instagram or on the Undisciplining Photography Symposium website. Photography on the run. A green river, crying trees, a boat, a fish, and a man. Sometimes we need somebody to love. Sometimes we need to pull somebody out of their comfort zone and just love them. The man is holding the fish like a baby, kissing it. It seems private, personal, sad, and at the same time very sensual. This is a very strange thing because the fish is really, it needs water. It wants to go back in the water. Soon the fish will be dead. Sometimes we need to breathe. It's a struggle for life, becomes a deadly dance. To feel the essence of this love. But the man depends on the fish. The skin touches the skin. There's tension, intimacy, and tenderness in these last minutes of life. The man will eat the fish. Sometimes we need somebody to hug. The children of the man. Somebody to kiss. Will eat the fish. Somebody to caress. It's a death ritual. Yeah. He's giving the fish a little pet. Death to survive. And we're zooming in. We're zooming in. Killing us softly. Oh, he put his finger into the flappy bits of the fish. Sometimes we just need to rest our head on somebody's shoulder and wait for it. They will all swallow this moment of tenderness. Sometimes we need hands. Not our hands. Somebody else's hands running through our bodies running through our faces, running through our souls. E eu coloquei para gravar. A gente ainda pode falar em português um pouquinho <risos> para esquentar. Perfeito. Gente, que alegria. So maybe let's switch to English finally, so our audience can follow us. Uh, first of all, welcome to Photography and Society, the podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about photography and parallelism in a different way. This time, 
from the point of view of a former colony through the work and practice of two Brazilian artists whom I admire and respect very much, Barbara Wagner and Jonathan Gendradi. Thank you so much for being here. Well, Rafa, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Me and Barbara, we are friends for so long, and I think it's maybe the first conversation together, like in a, in a more public way. So it's quite a, a moment for us. Hey, Rafa, thank you. We took the invitation as a, a very beautiful opportunity for us to not only get to see each other again, because we are both in Recife during this confinement. We are still in. I mean, here in Brazil, we are we're still far from having half of the population vaccinated. So we are both in Brazil for the last months. We are both uh, seeing each other and discussing a lot of our own practices and, and seeing Recife during this time. The invitation came in a, in a very special moment for us. So yeah, very happy to be able to share a little bit of what we do and, and who we are here in your program. Oh, amazing. Really nice to hear that. I'm really happy to have you guys here. Actually, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves. Who's going to start? Maybe, Barbara, do you want to introduce yourself first? Yeah, I can do that. I am originally Rafael from a city called Maceió. I don't know if you know that, but Jonas is also from there. So you ended up putting together two artists who are working in Recife, from Recife, but that are originally from this small city a little bit far from here. I mean, it's three to four hours driving distance. It's called Maceió, the state of Alagoas. They share pretty much the same history and culture, but it's a smaller place. I think we both left Maceió to study in the University of Pernambuco. I entered the course of journalism in, in 1998. Jonathan came a little bit later to study in the same course, not in journalism, but in communication in another session that is design and publicity. So we both got to know each other during the time we were studying. Uh, how many years ago? <laughs> Don't say, like that. Don't say otherwise you're going to tell your age. Yeah. <laughs> But it's beautiful how we met here. I, I worked in a newspaper called Jornal do Comércio, where Jonathan's sister used it to work. So I got to meet her first and then later Jonathan's arrived. So it's beautiful how we never really planned to work as artists, but we both ended up doing that in very multidisciplinary way because we actually come from journalism, communication, and then we, we end up making uh, me more... In the beginning, more photography, more documentary, photography, portraiture, very much originated from journalism, photojournalism. That was my first practice here in the city of Recife. And later, a more experimental um, exercise with filmmaking with Benjamin de Burka, an artist that I got to meet a little bit later when I studied art in the Dutch Art Institute in Arnhem in 2008. So uh, a couple of years later, when I was already a journalist, uh, experimenting a little bit in, in my way of using a digital camera to photograph people in the city of Recife, I... After two series of, of works that I developed independently and published, but the beginning of the 2000s, I felt the, the beginning also of the years of the Labour Party in power, I felt an interest in that kind of portraiture, an interest in, in the art field of a, a certain form of representation of what would be povo brasileiro. And, and that made me think that I could try surviving, living as an artist. And I found a very, this very interesting course in Arnhem that is um, directed by Gabriela Schleipen. Uh, the Dutch Art Institute had already run for a couple of years before I joined them. I spent two years there. 
after that, I met Benjamin and that began my story with collaboration in filmmaking with Benjamin and then the cinematographer Pedro Sotero that is running up to now. Yeah. I'm also curious about this partnership with Benjamin de Burka. How's it to look to Brazil in collaboration with a German? Basically, I think what happened between me and Benji is that we met. We got together in Berlin for a couple of years. After what, I invited him to come and see a little bit of uh, the city of Recife. And he came. We started to help each other to keep working as artists. But then inevitably what happened was that Benji's perception of Brazil really helped me to look back at the country, the area of the Northeast, but especially at that very special moment. We were back to Recife I was back to Recife. Benji was arriving for the first time in the year 2013, which was a year that really um, marked a shift in how we were understanding the politics of the Labour Party. Just before the World Cup and the first protests for Dilma to, to be impeached started in that movement. So from that point on, we, we saw a different Brazil. But at that time, it was very interesting to see what Recife was looking like. Me and Jonathan were getting together a lot to, to discuss what was going on. That was a very interesting moment in our careers. What was going on in Recife influenced very much what we're doing, what we did from that point on and what we are doing today in terms of how we understand our methodologies, I would say, also. And how we, how we look at what we, we see in Recife and how we engage with the people and communities in the city and elsewhere, but that have a lot to do with how we see the production of culture in the city. Nice you mentioned that, because I really want to, to talk about this a little bit later. First, it would be nice to Jonathan to introduce himself as well, and then we keep with this conversation that it's going to the point I really wanted. <laughs> Yes, I was born also in Maceió, a city four hours from Recife, and I, I came here in 2002, uh, right after I spent two years studying law in South Brazil. And uh, I came to the same university as Barbara to study communication, and I it took a while for me to understand how to engage my interests in arts that I had since I, I was a kid. But it was, in a way, very dispersed. My, my interests in design, books, aesthetics, photography, the different types of photography, the, the photographies I would see in the newspapers being a kid in Maceió, the photographies I would, I would see in, in magazines such as Monchetti, such as Vija. So I would see the type of editorial photography that I would be fascinated about. But my sister, who is a lawyer, introduced me to cinema, literature, and uh, being in Maceió, being an artist in Maceió, was something very, very hard to capture, hybrid possibilities. So being a kid in my school, being an artist would be sculpture, painting, theater, music. And I couldn't be any of those. I ended up, within some years, I found myself in the contemporary arts, a way of engaging my different interests. And uh, from the short period I studied law, I went closer to criminology, which is a fascinating field, which made me understand a little bit on how the state and the law are built to protect a certain elite instead of, of a whole. And that flipped my mind. And I think it helped me understand that everything, including image making, is about editing, is about creating a sort of a, of a frame of reality, is about editing the truth. And I think this became something fascinating to me because I understood that 
image making was um, was about to create a certain game of who speaks of what and who writes a certain history in which perspective. And I think my works, I try playing with the types of images and the types of relations that are built within making these images. I got closer to photography because it was a tool which I got very intimate to, like uh, my other sister is a journalist. And somehow while she was studying journalism, I could take her camera and play a little bit around. Back then we, we didn't have cell phones and, and cameras that easily. And uh, I was fascinated by video, but I couldn't imagine myself being a, a real filmmaker, a real cinematographer. For me, it was something very far away. And then uh, when I when I saw myself not being productive as someone working entirely in the communication fields like a real journalist, I ended up uh, trying to create my first project. That was with a bunch of pictures together and, and trying to create a visual version of one book. And that's how I got really shocked because somehow felt myself there. It's beautiful you say that, Jean, because in a way, it's exactly how I felt at the time in terms of uh, how you get to understand where you fit in terms of practice. And you just said it's like in the arts, if you were uh, driven to go into the art field for the influences that you had, you could not exactly recognize yourself being an artist. But then on the other hand, our education in, in media studies, it did train us to something that we actually also, again, didn't really fit into. So it's this very strange, beautiful place that we found where uh, a contemporary art practice that has a lot to do with research and the, and the use of medias like photography and cinema have a lot to do with this instability, let's say, in terms of um, being necessarily journalists or artists. Now, and I like that a lot. There was a very beautiful book that was launched by the time I was studying in Arnhem that was written by Alfredo Cramerotti on aesthetic journalism. And it was 2008. I got to meet Alfredo also in Dai, together with Hito Style, who was studying the uncertainty of documentary. These two lines of thought that I got access to in terms of journalism can be aesthetic and documentary, as in filmmaking, is uncertain. So this is exactly what I feel we are following up to now. It's very interesting to, to think of an uncertainty in the city of Recife because it's where Brazil started being colonized in a way, not Recife exactly, but not in the northeast. And it can be felt in the city, the contradictions of Brazil, the contradictions of Latin America, the contradictions of uh, peripheral areas throughout the world. We can see ruins, we can see buildings of different times, of different moments of that city. And you can see also the contradictions within the privileges and unprivileged people within daily life. And this negotiation is very hard because uh, it's very hard, but in a way very much settled down in this chaos that Recife presents. And uh, I chose this city initially to study, but I was fascinated how the Northeast, as a, as a place that I grew up, I could understand that it offered me also a, very much an inspirational scenario and a complex scenario of human capital, you know. So for me, when I, when I finished college, I was tracked that I couldn't leave the city. This city pushing me to somehow respond to things that I felt during my life, in my childhood. And my project started coming, always thinking of this perspective of what type of city do we have, for what type of person, and how they are interconnected. 
So how is this complex network of people who make the money happen in the city and being together with those that are totally marginalized by the system that makes this money happen? And uh, I think that's how my small like uh, contact with uh, criminology and in uh, political science and even the students' movement in within studying law back then made sense to work that in these structures in my projects. And uh, photography plays uh, is, is a very helpful tool to, to make me play with that. And it implicates me. It's less about portraying people. It's like creating situations or try to create situations that somehow require myself performatically to be in the streets, to negotiate with people, people that I observe, people that I'm fascinated about. Usually people that are that respond in a in an inventive way to marginality. So it's a very tough life. People are really struggling with a very unfair system, but still they can make a living of a of a certain joy within the poverty, within the, the hard life. And this is very uh, very inspirational to me as a as an act of resistance. I try a lot to get closer to that because I'm I'm personally inspired to that. But that also revealed my own personal contradictions. And that's the beauty and the complexity of working with arts within other people that don't come exactly from where I come economically, socially. But that's the beauty of the encounter. That's a little bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit large of, a, of an introduction, but... No, but it makes a lot of sense, actually, because in your practice, you have to be in contact with people surrounding you and the society around you. I, and I feel the same with Barbara. Maybe because you came from this journalist side and you worked for the Journal de Comercio and photography is like, like a nice excuse to get inside people's worlds, basically. And I see a lot of this in a corte, the cortege. You're talking about social class, you're talking about social issues and also race in something that's really beautiful and is really traditional from Recife as well. No, I think what you're referring to and maybe for the public we explain a little bit of uh, what is the series that you're talking about but no doubt that the impulse to go out there and meet people and portray them would come first from the fact that I was working employed by a paper so using digital photography and it's very important to say that if, if it was not for the the cameras being digital at the time I was working. So I, w I started working with uh, analog cameras, but very soon at the time, that was between 2000, to, uh, 2000, 2002, that the papers all over Brazil got to be digitalized and our practice changed completely. It was a radical change. So what I felt, and that's what maybe created this turn in a more documentary practice into the arts, having the camera in my hands and being able to show the people I was photographing what the result was, was instigating most of the times people to create the image they wanted. And by doing that, you could actually really, really collaborate by being immediately confronted with the picture that you could be making together with the person that would be sitting in front of you. So I wouldn't have space to, to bring that exchange into the practice of um, reportage. So I started to build these annotations on the side of this practice and then eventually I started uh, trying to, to get a little bit deeper into that in the first series that I made that's called Brasilia Teimosa. And eventually, a little bit later, in a quote that you're referring to, 
these two series are different, but the key, very essential similarity that is the people I'm photographing in both works, they are posing for me. They know that I'm taking the picture. I'm very close to them and they, and I use a flashlight angled from the sides and eventually also capturing the, the background where people are. In Brazil, it was the beach. That is called the same, that has the same name as Brasilia Teimosa, a very special place in the city of Recife, where a group of uh, fishermen settled in the 50s, place that was occupied by people who needed that space to live and survive. And that happened in the same years of the construction of Brasilia, that is today the capital of the country. So that's why it's called Brasilia Teimosa, which, is, which means stubborn. So the stubborn fishermen that occupied that place and resisted, and they were at the time already very well organized in the sense that they kept their right to, to be in that area until today. In 2004-05, Lula, the president in power, like for the first time, um, the Labour Party being in power in the federal government, Lula came to that very community and said they would have access to the beach because they were a community of uh, fishermen and their families sitting on palafitas that it's not so easy to explain, but these are houses that are built on wooden structures that float over the mangrove. Uh, what Lula did uh, in that year was to, to build an access to the beach by artificially, they built a, a, a beach that turned to be the, the, the playground area of people who were then getting together to enjoy the weekends. And that is, was, for me, as I see it today, in a, in a, in in a moment where mobile phones were not so popular, uh, we didn't have Instagram. We didn't have even this, the selfie wasn't even stated as a form. <laughs> so I I would arrive there with a camera and people would then pose uh, during the leisure time. So workers, you no know, people from a class that has a lot to do with those who are working for the city to move. In Corti, I did photograph people who are engaged in a tradition that is the maracatu. There are two types of maracatu. One happens in the countryside, another one happens in the city. They are slightly different in terms of um, how they are performed, but also how it sounds musically. That was a moment in 2013 when they were waiting to parade. They were sitting already with, with the clothing that they wear to parade, very much connected to a tradition that is called Reis do Congo. It's much more a, a Portuguese tradition, but they are dressed as kings and queens, ambassadors, and they are princesses and princes. And they, in that particular moment, I photographed a group that's called the Estrela Brilhante. There were children and very old also people that are carrying this tradition. I was specifically curious about how tradition is passed through the generations. That was the beginning of my research into what would be tradition today. That's how I came into Brega later, Brega music, Frevo Brega, later into gospel and swingera. I was very much trying to understand how this tradition survived, how they, they actually incorporate a lot of what we understand uh, that is part of what the working class consumes in Brazil no? through, now through technology. So basically what I was looking at, moments of celebration, let's say leisure, carnival, but that has a lot to do with how bodies that keep actually the, the workforce of what we understand as the economy of the city we live, what it is when they dismantle that performance of work into leisure or into carnival. 
but always keeping the idea that there is a work there that the bodies perform. It's really interesting to see this portrait that you, you shot because it's really representative and you can see the real Brazilian there. And also the color that you represent in those parties that are even the color in Brasilia Teimosa series that is really powerful. And this, for me, just relates to Brazil completely. We're a colorful country with a colorful people. It tells a lot of how Brazil incorporates different elements and we kind of so mixed and we're so different from each other. And... Nice that you mentioned about Lula period in presidency because maybe bringing to reality right now, our current reality, we don't see this anymore. This is actually so sad. Lula era really represented what Brazil really is. And we're missing that. All this colorful, all this joy, all this representation of labor or the representation of how people struggle every day but keep moving and how they need to be in society as everyone else is. Culture is so complex to understand. If we don't, if we don't take its connection with history and then economy, we, we don't really grasp what it is. No, so it's like more than and and the work of Jonathan brings that a lot in, into the understanding of these translations, né, from one field to the next. And I love that a work that's called Quarenta Negro Bom é um Real. It's a work that talks about a product that's made of sugar. And it takes the title of how it is marketed in the streets, but then it talks about a whole culture that has to do with the work of slaves in the production of sugar in the northeast of Brazil. But what I wanted to say uh, is that it's not that we don't mind mixing. There's no other way out of it, no? So it's, it is very much a culture of survival and it is. It has become, like Jonathan said in his introduction, it has become the way to go. And but the way to go that is so hard, but still can be joyful. And I think that even though we had very hard uh, moments in the in, in Lula's mandate, also Dilma's mandate, it was the first time in Brazilian history that we have, we have a worker in, in in this position. But especially uh, looking at how. The workforce of the country needs to get that release, no? So the recognition of how people have to have access to credit so they can enjoy their lives here now. So neoliberalism really applied in a way that really made this country recover a certain self-esteem. That's exactly what we don't have now. But of course, it's a, it's a big problem also to understand how it didn't really go on and how it became so complex no, as a transition. How did we start with Lula and how did we end now with Bolsonaro in these last 20 years? No, It is an interesting question. So all this is about povo brasileiro. So povo brasileiro is that povo that voted for Lula in the beginning of 2000, but it's also the povo that voted for Bolsonaro right now. So we have these different countries and different colors, just to be back to colors. The colors that we see in Brasilia Teimosa are not the colors we see in Sao Paulo. The colors we see in the Northeast are not the colors of the photography in the South, in the center, in the North of the country. So we are talking about a very complex um, piece of land. Uh, and this kind of reminds me a little bit of Jonathan's El Mestizo. It's a work that really deals with this difference of class, race, or even our colonial past, but stays in our everyday situations in Brazil. Could you mention a little bit about this work, Jonathan? I think it's really powerful. Yes, Rafael. When I hear you speak of uh, how Brazil is highly mixed in, in, in races and colors, and uh, it makes me, me think of how this image of a certain Brazilian democracy is a, is a huge myth. 
reminds me even of the legacy of Gilberto Freire. Barbara mentioned I work 40 Boyle Real, 40 Black Candies for one Real. It's very tricky because I think Brazil, in a way, has uh, an image of a place so racially complex as if it had a certain smoothness in daily life, in the daily relations. But actually, absolutely not, no. Racism is so much absorbed and uh, disguised in daily life relations that this is a big issue. No, recently we have been having a total uprise of these discussions by the black community in Brazil that has taken their voices and also taking this debate to a broader audience and to a large-scale production, culturally, in cinema making, and it has always been present, but I think we've been experiencing a, a large-scale debate that has never happened, I would say, demystifying the idea of the racial democracy. The work, you Mestiço, it started with this book that Barbara actually presented to me. It's called Race and Class in Rural Brazil. And it's a study by Columbia University on Brazilian racism after the World War II. And uh, basically, it's a scenario where it had to be proved that was a place where multiracial relations were possible in a more friendly way. But actually, the study uses photographs to question participants to judge the images of black people, the mixed race people and white people by certain parameters. And within doing so, we have a, a, a huge catalog of racist words and uh, racist connotations that, for my surprise, they were, they were words and criteria very much used in daily life. My idea was to photograph people today, you know, back then it was 2016, this work, in different cities in Brazil, and chop the text with keywords of those embarrassing words in daily life. They're still embarrassing, but still very present. And create a line in space with those words, words that actually embarrass us of this past, which is so much present. So I'm always intrigued by the presence of, uh, of this past, which keeps hitting us back and keeps uh, guiding the daily relations up to today. But uh, in this work, I experienced creating large-scale prints with cardboard. That material is very much used in advertising for movie theaters. So it was very, very nice to create images of a whole body figures in real scale or a little bit more. So I, I photographed these participants, people I invited in the street, some that I met, that I would be fascinated in the street, and I would invite them to the studio, explain a little bit about this project. We would experience photographing them in various personas and characters, even sometimes closer to what, how they felt themselves, and sometimes experiencing situations staged to the camera. I, I try approaching to the type of photography I imagine that study would do being an ethnographical uh, photography on, on those people. The thing is, as I'm always thinking of the status of how photographs create a certain reality and how photographs uh, help certain ideologies to be applied in a certain period of time, I work a lot with ambiguity because I'm interested in testing the audience. And for me, that work and other works of mine, they believe that the audience can be embarrassed, embarrassed in its own hidden racism. 
or not so heated. But the thing is, in a couple of years after Lula, after Dilma, and after the right wing in Brazil get this rise up, we had a very rise of a fascist. Nowadays, with Bolsonaro and with a right wing explicitly oppressive and not being ashamed of being racist and not being ashamed in being oppressor, playing with ambiguity is very tricky. Because now I feel the word can be misunderstood, not being critical enough, or even bringing up those words which are totally embarrassing, totally offensive, back to discussion, back to the walls of the museum. And looking backwards to this work, like uh, now we are in 2020 and the political panorama is completely different. And in 2017, I experienced that. Usually in other projects, I play harder with fiction and documentary. So you can see the ambiguity playing with the audience. And in LST, it looks more serious. Somehow, I think it plays harder in this embarrassment of, the, of a certain whiteness. That interests me, but it feels dangerous. And today, when I feel that people may potentially resonate with those words, agreeing with them, it gets me very nervous with this editing, for example. And it's only four or five years from this editing. And it's crazy how the political scenario and how an artwork can also speak of, of its present and how it can navigate in different political moods, political atmospheres. So these are some thoughts of this project, because in a way... It speaks a lot of the of how things are being reviewed nowadays in Brazil. Things are being very tough because on one side we have a very oppressive government from Bolsonaro, which is dismantling the whole system of support to culture, of support to indigenous people, of support to, to black people that back then has have been built up by previous governments like Lula. And it's very sad how these clearly resonates in how what how we see the streets today. We see hunger, we see lots of people in the streets, we see people without jobs and opportunities, we see people without education, and everything is, of course, challenged by the pandemic. I am myself reviewing my own strategies on how to navigate within making my, my, my projects with the strategies that we're building and, uh, and gathering in the previous years. Yeah, it's like if your work is very much considering language and language being extended not only to the language we speak and how we use this language to name the existence of people that you engage with in, in your work that are very much the people that me and Beji also engage with. But language also in the sense of how your body is implicated, how the other is implicated, now the other's body uh, is implicated in the sense of performance, how you move from photography into film, how photography can also not only be mounted, say, on the wall, but how it gets into the space. And I say that because we were in 2017, while Jonatas was showing, El Mestizo, me and Benjamin were showing Terremoto Santo a film that is basically an engagement with young evangelic singers that were trying through the arts, the art of singing and, and making music videos to get a better life. At the same time, that they would bring the, their belief, no? Or that they would serve the Lord. So it is uh, very interesting to think how language that is very much this object of our study, no? Our scrutination, our investigation, our strategies... Today, it is so difficult to find which would be the language to investigate. 
because the country is upside down. No? That's how I think we are reconsidering the tone, let's say. What is the tone of our work? How we actually get to be back into producing? What is the role of what we do here right now? When, as Jonathan also said, like the dismantling of the arts, of financing, of culture, education, but so many other civil rights. But the, the art world being so elitist, you know, in a country like Brazil, who are the people who go to museums and galleries? to see art, no? We are constantly questioning ourselves also. What is our role in that? What kind of language we are using? What is the discourse that is necessary now to be looked at? But also, who are the people who are coming, no? Because we and Jonathan were beginning to work as artists maybe 15 years ago. And now there are people who have access to different forms of producing artworks and they are also getting inspired or not by what we do. And this is very interesting to look at. I'm talking about people who would be much closer to these issues of race, class, and gender, which are so dear to the works that both me and Jonathan do, but that are not exactly, they are not literal statements. We, we, we have to talk about these issues because they are there in the bodies of the people we are cl coming close to. But we are not necessarily bringing that as a discourse that has the need to be shared. When, when we assume that it's impossible to talk about race without talking about class, without talking about gender, for example, we go to more complex places. And this complexity right now is somehow a little bit challenged. We are in a moment that is so like, we want to talk about the complexities. We don't want to be strictly talking about discourses that have to be necessarily brought forward because the works that we do are not pamphletos. They are not propaganda. So, I mean, it's very difficult to position yourself right now in terms of the left and right. In many aspects, I would say that I am very much myself as a professional, as a thinker, as a, as a practitioner in the arts, a product of the Lula years, the Labour Party years, the work that I do, I learned by an exchange with people, communities that was only possible through the existence of a certain economy of the, these groups. So people who were making Braga music, making gospel music, making the Swingera competitions, there are people who, who had access to a little bit more dignity. Yeah, they had the opportunity to work for themselves. Exactly. And make their own art and make their own art and make their own survival from that art. So the possibility of working with artists from the working class is something completely new no, in our generation. And now we are back to a moment where we have to talk about other things. So it is very much a moment of negotiating who is speaking for what. And we are very attentive to that. Now you're saying that we're revisiting your own practice, your own methods. What are you thinking could be an interesting way to deal with this? What kind of strategies can we use uh, to try to break those systems somehow? I don't know, because you don't want to give a platform to the wrong side, basically. Because both of your works kind of plays in fiction and reality and using documentaries somehow in different strategies. But what happens when now we don't know anymore what's real or what's fiction? Even in Brazil, that everything is kind of fake news. We have a president based on fake news and based on fiction. So how can you use photography or art in general to get rid of this? Yeah, that's exactly it, to share the same doubts. And then in this sense, we can't afford surviving without good journalism, for example. 
in a moment like this, having very courageous independent media channels that are doing the work supported by some other groups of society that understand the role of journalism, for example, something that maybe 20 years ago we would be saying it's dying, but no, it is coming back. No, as it is coming back, maybe photojournalism for me is, is something that is more and more necessary in, a, in the Brazil that we are living now. So it is beautiful to understand how these tools, né, if you talk about the inventions that we have at hand, no, in terms of uh, the reproduction of reality or the invention of reality. So we have the mobile phones, we have the, the cameras, we have people recording their voices, we have people making their own narratives in TikTok, no? And I think everything that we have now and all this big puzzle of information is very much a reality now. So it's impossible to think that this is, this is not true, this piece of, of uh, material is not true, and that is true. It is a super exciting, actually, moment for any artist, because things are defined, no? We're in a critical moment right now. Yeah, and I think we can't afford throwing any of these productions in terms of uh, uh, the usage of media. One thing that is interesting maybe to say is that these times they're always bringing different usages of old technology, no? And what I, I find interesting is that we don't know what's going to come after the pandemic is under control in the sense of how people got to communicate using the black mirrors, how this generation that's having to socially interact through social media, né? I think it's all very exciting because I'm actually very interested on how, how people who are not artists make art. The amateurs are always doing what they do, either because they love that or either because they actually really need that to exist. And creativity is a way to express, right? Like if you have like this really oppressive government right now, we need something to sterilize. Expression, art, creativity is a way to deal with it and also confront with this. Uh, as I see, I don't know, my aesthetics is also a way to talk about those really terrible issues. Something that's subtle, you know, like you can actually detach from reality for a little bit, but at the same time, there's this level of critique, a level of uh, reflecting on society that I see the, in the work that you, you guys make. And actually, I have a question for Jonathan, thinking about this perspective of Upeishi, the fish, that I really think that it's kind of in between of those. Uh, it's between violence and between beauty and at the same time being respectful to your own environment and those people, but the elements that is really important for surviving. So Peixe is this film of uh, where a group of fishermen were invited by me to embrace a fish for the first time in their life. It's filmed as an ethnographical footage, was shot in 16 millimeters. I've built up this scene with 10 different fishermen that perform to me. Working with film was particularly nice and challenging because I had limited time to film, to go. And within that, I think it emphasized the performatic level of the project. Basically, it's the same story. The environment is presented, then the fisherman is presented, trying to catch the fish, resting here and there. Nature is all around. And then there is a scene where the fish is caught and uh, the fisherman embraced the fish as if he was trying to calm the fish down, but not letting it go back to the water. And the camera dives in, hypnotized in that scene, as if the camera itself was also hunting that scene. So I imagine this double game of hunting. The fisherman hunts the fish and the camera hunts the scene and the fisherman. Of course, it plays with the idea of a certain ethnography that devours the scene and also 
it plays with the controversial aspect of ethnography that tends to exoticize the community or the object of the study. The film plays with that also with, uh, with creating an atmosphere of eroticization of the characters. So the camera is only observing, but the bodies in nature and the bodies within the body of the fish plays a certain performance that both creates an involvement of the audience through the sense of caress, love, but also a rejection of the audience who watches a scene very violent because the fish dies in suffocation in the arms of the fishermen. I was thinking of myths, of possible myths, that were invented, but they play with forces of that culture that I see here. I've tried this type of thing in other projects like Levante, where I produced the first horse race of downtown Recife, inviting the carters that are so common in the streets of Recife to be part of a huge parade and a, a race. So being understood as a fiction, I was authorized to shoot this movie, but actually for the carters, they were aware a film was being shot, but they were interested in the race itself. And of course, it's tense because we're dealing with animals and we're, we see animals and we see the bodies and the animals. But we can rethink on how human condition is approached to animal condition within this crazy capitalistic world. And I think Upeishi plays with this violence in these, the mistreat of animals and the whole understanding of the animal's rights within a worldwide culture who still eats fish and meat and also operates these as an industry within making a lot of social injustice by creating those type of people and, and groups, social groups that are put aside like the fishermen, like the carters. So it's very delicate how it puzzles everything. And I'm interested in this type of ambiguous situation because I'm interested in creating a debate which is very much visceral. For what I was saying in the beginning of our conversation of how image creates truth and how it can play tricks on us. I presented initially this film in Sao Paulo by Union in 2016, where Barbara also had a work in the show. It was very interesting because I, I, I was very careful in not having a, like a, a presentation text or a curatorial text very clear that it was a staged ritual, especially because being that scene, the first time where those fishermen embrace the fish in their life, it's also documented. But if you see that as a ritual, it doesn't exist as a ritual. A sort of a filmed performance, but a invitation to perform. So they work with their knowledge passed in generation to generation. So the muscles have their knowledge to deal with the fishing activity and to deal with the fish. So for me, the ambiguity of the documentary and the fiction and the appearance of having an ethnographical piece was very much of my pleasure in doing that work and also seeing the reactions because I could see even by the reviews, people were puzzled saying that it was a capture of a ritual that existed and some others could understand that it was ambiguous. So if we speak of, of violence in the animal in the parallel with the social violence of those people, I think this piece particularly plays a role having the eroticization as this metaphor for devouring itself, which is something that I enjoy having this temperature that the erotic brings to the images and to the methodologies of the work. Because although Brazil is very much uh, understood as a sensual country, it's 
also, for my surprise, it's very moralistic in uh, in how we deal with uh, eroticization. It's so part of our, of our of our culture and daily life, but it's also very disturbing to people. And I think it's also very interesting to take it not as a main theme, but having something to cross and to have uh, as part of the landscape that I'm working in. This idea of crossing into fields or crossing into different perceptions, or even the way we can relate to Brazil how we cross with different other cultures, like, for example, uh, United States. And uh, I see a little bit of these influences in Stavedo Coises when you deal with the brega and also the funk. We kind of have a lot of influence from United States with America, with the capitalism, with these ways of uh, seeing how you have to become famous and become rich somehow. I'm really interested for you to talk a little bit about those two artworks. Actually, Estás vendo coisas? Uh, I'm not sure. Is your first collaboration with Benji, or I'm going completely nuts here? No, in terms of filmmaking, I think it's the first that really got to be very visible because it was part of the same biennial where Jonathan presented the page. But it was the second film we made together in Recife in collaboration with Pedro Sotero. That's the cinematographer we have been working with in all basically all the films that we made up to now. But this, um, it's interesting that they talk about North America and they're talking about photography and imperialism, but also what is at stake here. I think it is the idea of consumerism, no? So we were in 2012, 13, in the research of the Brega clubs in Recife, uh, the work that preceded Estás Vendo Coisas, which means you are seeing things which is, again, a, uh, a verse in a, in a Brega song. Maybe for the public, I have to say that Brega is a music genre that is not so far away from samba in the sense of how it is a chronic of the reality of the lower classes in the peripheries of the country, but at the same time, a kind of a text as song that is not really afraid of talking about the erotic. That's exactly what Jonathan was talking about, you know? Completely related to Brazilian funk as well where the body is really important to all the questions around the music, basically. Yeah. And the perception, the erotization. Exactly. But then uh, love in a way that is very much related to the erotic. Nah? You feel the love, the abandonment. You feel a betrayal in your skin. It cuts your flesh, no? And this is very much what they do as image when there was a generation making music videos in, in the 2000s. And me and Benjamin were fascinated in, in 2012, 13 to see how prolific they were. I mean, very young, small production companies making very high quality music videos and the whole chain of production that that was involving in the sense that they were producers, music producers, creating the beats. Then uh, we would see the, the video makers making the music videos. We would see the owners of clubs and uh, empresarios that were running the careers of very young MCs and dancers. So a whole scene that you could say, yeah, very much influenced by an idea of uh, stardom of pop singers in America, but at the same time, very, very doable, you know, because very much connected to our traditions. So this is the beauty of the Bailey Funk in Rio. It's the beauty of a uh, Roda de Samba, a uh, trio eléctrico in Bahia, and then um, a banda de brega performing in a nightclub. It is so regionalized in many ways. It's so specific at the same time. The way you dance, you know, the words that are being spoken that really resonate to a certain culture and understanding of language too. So it is a film that had, of course, a comment on that culture, but not in the sense to criticize 
again, who are we not to be saying, and this is also something that happened when we presented this work for the first time in, term, in terms of the moralizing that happens in the art world as well, in the sense of like, why are you showing in this film these girls that are like shaking their ass in front of a car? I mean, this is because this is what happens in the music videos and it's, this is what's happening to the generation that are listening to that in Brazil. And it, this answer doesn't mean that we would be committed to portraying the truth because we know that that doesn't exist, actually. But we, we didn't want to compromise our freedom to actually collaborate with the makers of this industry and then censor what would be then present or not in the film because it would be less ambiguous. So the ambiguity is then there back to the core of the work. The lyrics are complex. The movements of the body are complex. And we're talking about brega that's called brega funk. Then the funk that we're talking about made in the northeast of Brazil is very much influenced by the north of Brazil and the Caribbean and also the funk ostentação that's then very much influenced by American rap. There's nothing to do with funk in the sense of funk music. But in many ways, I think what the work brings there is understanding of labor. So it's not about the economy of brega per se, but we use that as an excuse, like we're looking at the brega industry to then talk about the human condition of workers that are in between two different kinds of production. So if the MC in the film is actually a hairdresser and if the singer in the film is a firefighter, they are always in between these two roles. And it's also how we found a way of talking about a generation that was working in, in the symbolic. No? So the first time that a certain class, a generation of a certain class was able to work in the arts and work with the building of a, a symbolic instead of just being exactly repeating the history of oppression that is so close to their ancestors, let's say. That's really true. And I've, it's like a lot of independency as well. Like they're able to live by their own, by the music they want to make and the way they want to live. They use it to have fun. We don't know what's going to happen now. We're hopefully going to overcome that but we are talking about a generation that very quickly got to understand a way of surviving through the label of the arts and this is so beautiful because it does talk about the precariousness of our practice no so in this way we we actually learn how very quickly the working class can understand how to get in and out of the art field now we see the mcs that use it to be making music videos they are now making delivery for the restaurant during the pandemic but that's it. We're hoping for a very strong country to be back to dreaming. No, I mean, it sounds very cheesy, but it is. <laughs> no, that's true. I was talking with a friend the other day, like in Brazil, we live in constant dystopia with Bolsonaro and everything that's happening right now is just the worst scenario that we could have. And we basically stopped dreaming and stopped thinking about utopia. What could be a better future? What could be something that is inclusive for everyone? Now we say vacina do braço, comida no prato. So that's the basic. Vacina no braço is being vaccinated and comida no prato and then having food to eat. And that's basically what we all need now. We are very much fighting for the basic. For me, it's really important to have this episode, this podcast, and even with you both, because it's, it's powerful. It's really representative somehow to talk about not only the bad things, but what we can do with art and photography and try to enhance a debate at least. Or even try to save ourselves a little bit of this madness. I don't know anymore. But yeah. And actually, I don't have more questions. What I want to do right now is... I know that you both have some exhibitions for planning for the next months, I guess. 
Uh, I would love to hear a little bit more about it. I'm coming back to Europe sooner than I thought to organize together with Benjamin, who is there right now, a series of exhibitions that are going to start coming back in the second semester in Europe. Here in Brazil, still don't have any understanding of when they're going to be back to work. But in Europe, we have a couple of shows, especially in, in the Netherlands, we will have a participation in Rotterdam in September there will be um, an edition of this Sculpture International. We're taking part of that with a piece called Faskivai on Frevo music. And later in between October and November, we didn't really fix the date. We will be in Tilburg in a museum that's called Depont with a solo show of a piece that we produced last year in the occasion of Manifesta in Marseille. The piece is called 100 Steps. It's a work that we made in between Ireland and uh, in, in between Irish culture and the Northern African one. It was shot in Ireland and in Marseille. It's going to be the first public presentation of the work after its premiere as an installation. So hopefully we'll have the chance to meet in person also very soon. And what about you, Jonas? I know that you have also an uh, exhibition here in the Netherlands. Yeah, Sapphire, I'm, I'm working on a solo show at the Foam Museum to open in September. Everything is so so much shifting you know, to in, in relation to the pandemic, but hopefully I'll be present. It would be really nice to meet you in person and, and to show you the exhibition. And I'm also working on a, on a, on a film production for the Fondazione Art in Between in Italy. So these are the main projects I'm working right now. Since the pandemic started, I had a few things postponed. Some went online. So it's a it's a crazy moment <laughs> for us artists because everything went a lot online, which is somehow it helps to like a broader audience to get to know our works. Some other it's a, it's quite challenging because we're used to think scale architecture. I really enjoy that, and I know Barbara also plays with the with the space a lot when presenting films. So when we think films and photography with experimenting the brands, the materials, it's very challenging just to shift and, and go online. So uh, hopefully we'll get to have these physical experience again soon. But it was a pleasure. And again, Barbara said it's amazing to speak together with her. And uh, we are based both in Recife and our works like cross a lot, like these issues and we work with communities. So the pandemic also allows us to be the same city and we've been exchanging as much as we couldn't exchange with the past years, I would say. So it's it's pretty amazing to have this podcast right now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Thank you, Rafael. Thanks, Rafael. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate that. And really nice to bring everything together, <laughs> you both, digitally. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Muito obrigado. Thank you, guys. And see you around. Até mais. Tchau, querido. Hey, thank you so much for sticking with us in this episode of Photography and Society, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening. In the beginning of this episode, you heard a video description. The title is Opeche, which means the fish. And it's a work that Jonatas de Andrade shared with us in this episode. If you want to see it, you can check it on our Instagram or on the Undisciplining Photography Symposium website. Also, if you're curious to see more about Barbara and Jonatas' work, please check out their websites. Thank you again and see you around. Thank you for listening to this episode. The team of Photography and Society, the podcast, would like to thank Ben Smith, our supervisor, Echo the Dolphin and Julia Koch, who designed all the music parts, and the Department of Photography and Society of the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague. If you want to know more about the topic of this episode, please visit the platform where you found us for more info.
photography, society.